Thank you, Linda. I enjoyed that prelude wherever she went. Take your Bibles and go to Second Peter. Second Peter. First chapter. A few weeks ago, had a friend stop by and um, he wanted to see the building. Uh, if you didn't know, there's a building being built back there. In fact, we should be breaking through this wall pretty soon. Um, right outside these doors, actually. Um, but anyway, he stopped by and we were talking a little bit and he said, um, hey, I'd like to see your building. And I said, great. I said, I'd love to show it to you. And so we were heading outside, and when we hit that front door, there was a stench that was absolutely undescribable. And I told him, I said, I'm not going out there. And so I didn't. And I was like, what is that smell? I mean, it was awful. And so, come to find out, it was the guys emptying out the porta john outside. The truck comes by and empties that baby out, and whew, the odor was unbelievable. Needless to say, I didn't take, take him to show the building, and he hadn't been back since. <laughs> I don't know if he ever wants to come look at it. You know, we live in a corrupt world, guys. We live in a corrupt world. Our world stinks. You agree with that? Whether or not you agree with it or not, the Bible's clear. It stinks. And it stinks because of sin. Sin has polluted our world. And in the midst of that, um, Peter argues that these believers are to grow. And in the midst of the stench that is around us, we've been charged to grow. You know what the great part is? Positionally, if you're in Christ today, the stench is not on you. Christ has covered you with his righteousness. But the stench is all around us. There's corruption worldwide. I want you to go with me to Genesis and the sixth chapter. I just want to show you Real quick, Genesis and the sixth chapter. There was a time in our world in which there was an awful stench, an awful smell. Sin was abounding, I guess you could say. In fact, if you look in chapter 6 and verse 11 of Genesis, the Bible tells us, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Now notice verse 12. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was what? Corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So here we have in Genesis a description for us before the flood of how the earth was. And the author uses the term corrupt. It was polluted. 
It stunk. There was sin all around. And yet, in the midst of all that pollution, I want you to notice back up in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, verse 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a what man? A righteous man, blameless in his time, underscore the next phrase, Noah did what? He walked with God. We've been called, if we're in Christ, to mature, to grow in the midst of corruption. It's all around us. Let me give you some examples. Immorality is everywhere. Marriage today is no longer upheld like it once was. When you get to talking about sexual promiscuity, it's everywhere. To find one who's faithful to his ho- their husband or wife in these days is very uncommon. Truth is no longer held in high regard. People don't care about truth. Truth is relative. What's true for you is truth. But is that what the scriptures tell us about truth? Do you remember in John 17 in the high priestly prayer of Christ, Jesus acknowledges that the disciples were in the world and he prays for them. He acknowledges the corruption in the world and he prays for them. He says, I'm asking, Father, that you protect them from the evil one. Because evil is all around us, guys. We don't have to walk very far in this life to find evil. People speak evil, people live evil. And yet in the midst of all that, just like was in Peter's day, we've been asked to grow as believers. (laughs) All right? And you look at that and you say, well, that's absolutely impossible. But it's not impossible. It's possible to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Word of God and of the Lord as we yield, listen to me, as we yield to the Spirit of God. And that's it. Peter draws a line between salvation and sanctification. I think people get confused at times as it relates to salvation and sanctification. How is a person saved? By grace, through faith, alone, in Christ alone, plus what? Nothing. So when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're clothed with his righteousness. That's your salvation. And the rest of your life is what? It's about sanctification. There is future glorification, but right now it's about sanctification. It's about how I live. It's important how I live. The scriptures tell me it's important, and Peter underscores the importance. In fact, I would argue this is the most important section in this letter because of what these guys were facing as believers. Growing in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a corrupt world where truth is not upheld, where immorality is rampant. And yet, 
we've been called to grow. How important is that on your meter? That whole spiritual growth thing? How important is that? I'm just asking you. That's something you can think about today. How important is that in your life? How important is that in my life? It's a great question. I want to give you or propose something to you that spiritual growth is absolutely essential in the Christian life. It's as necessary as bread and water every day. It's that necessary. Think about the things that we set aside every day to do. All those things we have in our day, right? And we're all busy, right? That's our culture. We're all busy. But when have I set aside time to grow? To mature? To get closer to my God who saved me, right? I'm thinking, man, all these things. Because in the, remember in the first four verses, Peter's saying, look at, look at all what God has done. Look at all what he's done. He talks about precious faith and precious gifts of grace and peace. And hey, he's equipped you for everything you need for life and godliness. And you have all these promises. Man, it's awesome what God has done. Now it's your turn to come alongside God and do something. See, spiritual growth. People get confused. And so, you know, we, we understand that salvation piece. But the sanctification piece, there's two parts to the sanctification piece. And we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But I want to just underscore the importance of understanding that sanctification is partly God. It's God who's at work in you, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to see that in a few moments. But we have responsibility. Because at the beginning of that section in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. That word work, the root of that is the word ergon. And and, and it talks about energy and effort, right? I mean, you say, well, I want to grow in the Lord. So you put your Bible under your pillow. Great. That's going to help me grow in the Lord. No, I need to do what I need to open the Word. I have a responsibility in the process of sanctification, we understand that God is at work in us, right? And there's times we're like, Lord, what are you doing? But we have to come alongside and work with the Spirit of God who has been placed in each of us. Yield to the Spirit. And so my proposal to you this morning based on this section is that spiritual growth is absolutely essential in the Christian life. So then I pose two questions. Are you growing? Would you say right now you're growing? I just planted a few weeks ago. Like, I'm not, what would you call, a a person who um, necessarily thinks uh, that when I plant something, it's going to grow. But with the help of my Lord, my roses have grown. On the side of our home, there's this area there that was looking really ugly. And so I spent a lot of time working on the house, and I was painting that side of it, and I... And I got that side just like I wanted it to look. And I'm like, it needs something. Right? You ever looked at your house and thought, it needs something. So I'm like, I'm going to plant these rose bushes with this thought. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Right? I mean, some of you might know what you're doing. Well, I don't. I just know I went and got the shovel and I dug the holes and I planted the roses. And I'm like, all right. Man, they're beautiful. They're awesome. Right? 
I can see the growth and development. They're really, really beautiful. In fact, there's so many roses on one of those babies, it's just kind of flopping over. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's beautiful. So what's the measurement of your growth? I see the plants are growing. How's that looking in your life? And how's that looking in my life? Those are important questions. Then, second question is, are you stagnant? Are you stagnant? That ever happened to you? You ever ever been stagnant, right? You're like, man, you know, a whole week goes by and you're like, I don't even think I've opened the Word this week. I'm not even sure I said hello to the Lord this week. Happens. You know, the only way to avoid the stagnation is to get in the book and to remain on your knees. That's it. You know, you can buy whatever book you want to buy in the bookstore on growing spiritually, but the Lord has given us His Spirit, right? His Spirit indwells us. His Spirit continues to do His work, but we must come alongside the Spirit and do our work. We have responsibility. So if you're stagnant, then you have to be willing in your life to say, I'm stagnant, Lord. I'm not growing like I need to. I mean, I've had times in my life like that. Any of you? Am I the only one in the boat? I've had times like that. And without, without a doubt, every single time that I felt like I was in the ditch spiritually, it's because I wasn't in this book enough. Every time. You know, people are looking for all kinds of reasons. Why am I not doing this? Why am I not doing that? Get back to the basics. So spiritual growth is absolutely essential in the Christian life. And we live in this corrupt world, and the corrupt world is a distraction at times. Um, I want to give you a warning. There's a quote by Jerry Bridges I really like. Um, in terms of growth, in terms of the world, in terms of um, this whole process of sanctification. I like the way he puts it. He says, when we attempt to live the Christian life in our own strength, you know what that looks like? Let me give it to you practically. When we attempt to live the Christian life in our own strength, we have a set of, uh, of things that we're checking off. I prayed today, I read today, right? That's not what it's about. When we live, attempt to live the Christian life in our own strength, we're coming up with all these rules and these regulations. In fact, he writes, we move in the direction of legalism. You know what legalism does? It robs you. It robs you of what? Grace. God deals with us on the basis of grace. We have all these gifts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. We have everything we need for life and godliness. So we partner with the Holy Spirit. But we don't make this set of rules or regulations or a checklist. He says we move in the direction of legalism if that happens, pride and frustration. So when we attempt to live the Christian life, we have to to know this, that it's not about our efforts. It's about what the Lord is doing through us and so we come alongside the Spirit of God and we move in tandem with the Spirit and we do move with energy and effort but we don't attempt to live the Christian life apart from the Spirit of God 
in our own strength. Um, there's some initial observations I want to make about this section because we'll be this week and next week. We'll finish, through, we'll finish verse 11 next week. But I just want to make some initial observations about what Peter is, is doing in this section. And the first is, is that Peter writes about growing spiritually with a sense of urgency. With a sense of urgency. I want you to look at verses 12 through 14. Peter says, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. One of the, if you're going to see that phrase repeated over and over again, um, I think you can make even the argument that, that Peter's referring back to the things he's write, written about in verses 5 through 7. He uses that same phrase in verse 15 and even in 8 and uh, 9 and 10. But in verse 12 he says, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth. Now underscore that. Established in what? Established in the truth which is present with you. Notice verse 13. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 14. Look at this. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter writes with this sense of urgency. Why? There's two reasons. I'd like to propose that there's two reasons given to us. First of all, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd, right? And a shepherd is concerned about who? The sheep. I want you to back up with me. You just have to turn a page. First uh, Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. So in this section, he's writing with this sense of urgency. And I would propose as the first argument, because he was a shepherd. Notice uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. What's the next phrase? Chapter 5, verse 2. Shepherd who? The flock of God among you. Every elder in this body has a responsibility to shepherd this flock. There's no excuse. Right? You read on the back of your bulletin, and it has the list of the elders here at Grace. Every single elder has the responsibility to shepherd what does a shepherd do? What does a shepherd of the Lord do? He looks out for the sheep. He warns the sheep about impending danger. I'll give you an example. There's a lot of false teaching out there. As a shepherd, I'm warning you. There's a lot of false teaching out in churches today. All around us who are coming short in relationship to the gospel, who are legalistic, who don't understand grace, who don't believe in hell. That's right. That's a doctrine that's being taught out there. There is no hell. Everyone's going to end up in heaven. Is that true? So as a shepherd, I mean, if I care about you, then I'm going to tell you those things. 
because it's my responsibility as a shepherd to do that. Peter had this sense of responsibility and urgency, and he not only told the shepherds that were pastoring these churches, but he knew it himself as an elder, that he was to shepherd the flock of God. Not every church teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not every church holds to grace. There are a lot of churches that add to the gospel a list of things that you must do in order to maintain a right standing before God. That's false teaching. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's true. Because salvation is only by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. Plus nothing. It's not salvation by grace through faith alone plus taking communion. Now, it's important that we recognize and remember the Lord's Supper, right? Recognize what happened with his death. Recognize that his his blood was shed, right? We, we, We do that. That's important to do. But it doesn't save us. You giving to the Lord, because that's who you're giving to, when you put money in that plate, whether it's right here at the back or outside the doors, it doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. It's an evidence that one belongs to the Lord. There are all kinds of churches out there today advocating a false gospel. So as a shepherd, it's my responsibility to warn you. Peter felt that sense of urgency And so he writes with that sense of urgency about spiritual growth. But then secondly, there's a second argument. Not only was he a shepherd and he had that responsibility, but his death was imminent. (laughs) Verse 14 says that. You back, back up to 13, he says, I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of a reminder. You know, some people don't like to be stirred up. Mm. You agree with that? Some people don't like to be stirred up. There may be even some Christians that are just okay having what people call fire insurance. I'm saved, but I don't need you to stir me up. I've got heaven, and there's nothing else I need. God doesn't require anything else of me. There are a lot of people like that. To start, listen, when the Lord stirs me up, it doesn't feel good sometimes. Right? I, I love cake. I really like white cake, white frosting. And my grandmother used to make me this double layered white cake and white frosting. Double, not just one cake, but it was the cake with frosting, another cake, frosting. It, it, was, it was awesome. And every once in a while, I would have the opportunity to watch her make that cake. And she would get that bowl out, big bowl, and she would put all that batter together and she'd stir that baby up. And, and guess what? I love to lick the bowl. Any of you like that? Not good for us? Who cares? Eat it. It's good stuff. But I mean, I would get that. She had the, what do you call that thing you put in there and you beat it up and, and I'd lick those things too. good stuff 
And I could see all that stuff, all that goodness being stirred up, and, and I saw the end product, right? It wasn't just that stuff there, but then she'd put that cake in the oven, and then she'd take that frosting, and she'd put it all over there, and I, I mean, I'd see the final product, and I wanted to dive in that cake. But it all started with stirring up. And Peter says, hey, listen, I need to stir you up. And notice verse 14, he tells us why. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, it's close. You know, guys, we don't know when the Lord's coming back. We don't know, do we? We know he's coming. But you know what? I really believe Christians could stand to be put in that little bowl and stirred up. Reminded, hey, guys, He's coming, but I need to stay on course. I need to stay on that path that the Lord has for me. I need to work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So Peter has this sense of urgency because he knew his home going was soon. You know, I find I wrote this in my notes because it's, it's something I don't think 20 years ago I thought about as much, but I wrote this. I found, I find as I grow older that my concern for my children and my grandchildren and their spiritual walk gets greater and greater and greater and greater and greater. Because you know what? I've been saved a long time and I know what it is to walk with the Lord and there's nothing like it. There's nothing like walking with the Lord. I want my kids and my grandkids to know that. So Peter writes with this sense of urgency. And then secondly... Peter focuses on spiritual growth because false teachers were present. So he's focusing in, in 5 through 7 on this, this, uh, this model for spiritual growth, but he's focusing on that because there were false teachers present. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what Peter writes. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be, also be, excuse me, false teachers among you. Now notice how these false teachers work, who will secretly introduce what? Destruct, look at that language, destructive heresies. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves not acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord would you say that's a destructive heresy I would would you say it's a destructive heresy to say that there is no hell I would would you say that it's a destructive heresy to say that salvation uh, is by grace through faith alone plus something else? I would. There's a lot of destructive heresy. The inerrancy of Scripture, it's out there today. People do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's a destructive heresy. And Peter talks about that in the end of chapter 1, which we'll get to. So Peter's writing with a sense of urgency because of false teachers. Um, look in chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. He brings it up again. 
And in the context of the passage, he's, he's talking about those people that are mocking, talking about where is the promise of his coming. And we'll talk about that when we get to it in chapter 3. But at the end of chapter 3, he says, therefore, and that therefore goes back to because we are looking, look in verse 13, because we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, therefore, brothers, beloved, since you look for these things, so he's, he's assuming they're looking, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught, now look at this, which the untaught and unstable distort, just as they also do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. There are going to be a lot of surprised people in hell. Peter says, verse 17, you therefore, knowing this, Beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own what? Steadfastness. Because as a believer, I've been called to steadfastness. And he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I just want to give you one other passage of Scripture real quickly. Turn with me back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and really um, 3 and 4. Uh, of Second Timothy, you could just do a sermon series on identifying false teachers and the importance of remaining in the truth. But I just wanted to read this section as Paul's writing to Timothy at the end of his life. So there's this sense of urgency on the part of the Apostle Paul. He says, chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. What have pastors been called to do? Preach the word. Pastors are not called to be entertainers. They're not comedians. Pastors are called to preach the word. That's what we're called to do. That's what Paul calls Timothy to do, who was a timid man. Preach the word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. All those things, by the way, are needed. For the time will come. Why do you preach the word? Why do you reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're living in that time. We're, we're, and we're not looking for that time. We're living in it. You agree with that? We're living in that time. People are looking for a substitute to the gospel. Or as I read on Facebook, on the post of someone not long ago, how in the world could people be so foolish as to believe there is a God who would allow sin and then send a Savior? You ever listen to an unbeliever talk in terms of if they get on the subject of quote-unquote theology? Whew, it's rough. 
Their viewpoint of God is awful. Their viewpoint of Jesus Christ is worse. Can I just tell you, I'm very, very thankful for the teachers we have here at Grace. I'm thankful for our small group leaders. I'm thankful for our Sunday school teachers. They're not here for a popularity contest. They're here to teach you the Word of God. You know, when Jesus prays for His disciples in John 17, He says to His Father, Sanctify them in the truth. That's what sets us apart from everybody else. If you're a believer today in Christ, you go out there, you start spitting out the truth, man, you're going to be shunned. And they're going to say to you something like, well, there can't just be one way to God. That just, there just can't be. And you know what we say? Well, you know what? The Bible says, that's what we say. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, and so Peter has this sense of urgency. Paul has this sense of urgency. Look at verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their what? Their own desires. So they want the cake and the frosting and, and all the balloons that go with it. But when you start talking about personal responsibility, that's when they're going to cut you off. But I found this to be true. While I'm saved by grace and, and I live my life by grace, the Lord has some demands in my life. Is that true? He does. You know, just live like I want to live. One point in Paul's writings, he talks about a man named Demas, and he says, Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me. Well, Paul goes on, he says, and will turn away their ears from the what? Truth. And will turn aside to myths. Guys, we live in a culture where truth is not popular. It's not popular. And you say, well, I go to this church and they teach the Bible. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, does he believe it 100%? Yeah, well, I'm not going there. Well, Peter writes... With a sense of urgency, he focuses on spiritual growth because teachers, uh, false teachers were present. And I want to get into just a little bit. You're like, oh my goodness, you're getting nervous because you're thinking, oh my goodness, he hadn't even got to the verses. That's okay, we're good. Um, because I'm only going to talk about two words, okay? So um, you're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he'll never get through verse 11 next week. Not true. Okay, with the help of the Lord, I will. Um, I want you to notice... In Second Peter chapter 1, look in verse 5. All right? In the first four verses, Peter set up for these guys, look, this, these are all the benefits. This is what God has done for you. And he talks about, in verse 3, that they've been equipped with everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then in verse 4, he says, For by these uh, he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, which is a positional statement. And then you get to verse 5 and he says, Now for this very reason also. What reason? Well, for the reason that I've escaped this present world, 
with its corruption and lust. And because I am a partaker or participant of the divine nature, because I'm born again, because I have this precious faith, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. And you're like, whoo, man, that's a lot to swallow. Certainly is. But I want to show you how we can be helped. There's an attitude that he begins with in this growth. All right, the attitude in our growth. And there are two words that, that speak about this attitude. The first one is the word applying. Notice he says, verse 5, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. That word apply means to bring alongside. This is a very, very critical word in the text. This is what separates... Um, those who might be more slanted toward legalism and those of us who understand that we're in a partnership with the Holy Spirit, okay? Big, big word here. The word apply means to bring alongside. It's the picture, we're coming alongside the Spirit of God, right? But it stresses the need for involvement, right? So it means to bring alongside it means to be involved. We're involved in the growth process. And I think the best verse that explains that, or best section, is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I referred to it earlier, but let's break it down real quick. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Now, what does that not say? He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. I told you what that word work, you go back to the root, it's ergon. All right, it's effort, it means energy. So there is a requirement for us, right? There is effort and energy required. He says work out your salvation, and then he tells you how? With fear and trembling. When we look at that and go, whoa, man, that's pretty heavy. Would you not say that's pretty heavy? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice what he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he is at work in us, but Paul says also work out. And so this word applying means to bring alongside. It means to come alongside. It stresses the need for our involvement. So in believers, we're involved in the growth process. We're involved in that. You know, we, we come together on a Sunday morning, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, so that we can grow together as a body of believers. That's why you attend discipleship groups. That's why you are involved in Sunday schools and, and ladies' Bible studies. Why? Because there is an importance to growth. It helps me as a believer in Christ. All right, so he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, so you have in this growth, this attitude, this first word applying, so it means to bring alongside, to come alongside what the Spirit is doing. There's a second word here that's presented to us, and it's the word diligence. Notice he says, now for this very reason also applying all diligence. That word diligence refers to an eagerness or a zeal. Um, the word discipline could also be used. 
Um, there's effort on our part. For example, we make the effort to open the Word. We make the effort to read God's Word. We make the effort to pray. We make the effort to be involved in the lives of other believers. Also has the idea of zeal. I, I went back and looked in, in Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He uses that same word. Except his zeal was toward persecuting the church. <laughs> All right? He says, as to zeal, I mean, he has this whole list right, of self-righteousness, basically. And he's saying, this is how I was before Christ. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, you look back at Paul's life, would you say he had zeal in reference to persecuting the church? Answer, yeah. He was very zealous about that. Isn't it interesting that, I just love the testimony of Paul in that. I mean, if you've not read that, read it again. I mean, you know, he, he's walking to Damascus and he's zealous about persecuting the Christians and what happens? The Lord stops him. Stops him. And then he becomes zealous for the gospel of Christ after he's saved. You know, when you're zealous about something, right, there's this great effort on your part to be the best, to be what you can be for the Lord. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy watching basketball. I enjoyed playing basketball when I was in college. I enjoy watching basketball now, whether it's college or pro. But my favorite player of all time is Larry Bird. I loved watching Larry Bird. Now, I'm an old guy, but I loved watching Bird play basketball. How many of you don't know who Larry Bird is? There'll be a class following church today. All right, short video. But Larry Bird was one of the greatest basketball players ever to play the game. But do you know in, in the NBA, he shot 88.6% for his career at the foul line, at the free throw line, at the charity stripe, as some call it. He shot 88.6%. And you think, well, how did he get to be so good at that? Well, do I? If you have the answer, we're good. Do you know that that all started with the discipline that he had when he was in high school? Do you know this about Larry Bird? That he would, before his classes, you know, at school, Monday through Friday, he was at the gym at 6 a.m. And before he went to his first class, he shot 500 free throws every day. 500. And he just got 88.6%. You think a dude that shot 500 a day get over 90, right? But all that started back here in high school. And then we, we saw the results of all that work and all that effort. Hey, guys, can I encourage you that this growth is a process in the Christian life? That's what it tells us in Philippians 1. It's a process. He who began the good work we sang about today will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ. But it demands a diligence on our part. Um, there's a quote I want to end with. Whoa. J. Vernon McGee. I don't know how many of you even know who J. Vernon McGee is. If you have white hair or no hair, you might. But um, I like Jay Vernon. Um, he was a great preacher. He said, Peter's reminding us that the Christian life is serious business. And he's referring to these verses here, verses 5 through 11. He says, it is not something you wear at certain times of the day, but it is something that demands diligence and discipline at all times. That's our part. Our part is the diligence and the discipline. 
there's a story um, of Booker T. Washington, the famed educator who took an entrance, entrance exam that earned him a place at the Hampton Institute in Virginia as a young man. And the head teacher ordered Washington to take a broom and to sweep the classroom because he knew this was his chance. Washington swept the room three times and dusted the furniture four times. And when the teacher returned, she inspected the floor closely and ran her handkerchief over the woodwork. Unable to find a speck of dust anywhere, she said, I guess you will do to enter this institution. I guess you will do. Washington later said that this was the turning point of his life. You know, guys, I'm not a big fan of cleaning the house. I mean, I'll do it. But I'm not like a huge, I want to get up and clean the house. But I know that in getting up and cleaning the house, right, there's this effort that's required on my part. You know, whether it's cleaning the toilet, which I do singing hymns, or, right, I do. I would encourage you to sing hymns when you're t- cleaning the toilet. Whether I'm cleaning the toilet or whether I'm sweeping the kitchen, however I can help my wife, I'm doing that. I'm committed to doing that. But it takes effort and energy. And you know what? It takes a diligence and a discipline. It's the same thing in the Christian life. If we're going to grow spiritually, it demands a diligence and a zeal on our parts as believers. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for your word. And as we get into some of the specifics next week, Lord, we see all these things that we are to supply. Um, And we know, Lord, that your spirit's working in us. Uh, We know that. Your word tells us that. And as we yield to the spirit of God, we can mature and grow in the midst of a corrupt world. That can happen, all for your glory. And so, Lord, we want to be very, very careful to, to make the distinction between our salvation and our sanctification. Understanding that, Lord, you're the one that saves us. And you're the one that, that, that is in this process of sanctification with us. But we also have responsibility as we yield to the Spirit of God. And so I pray that we would come to understand that, that we would take seriously um, this process of spiritual growth, that we would come alongside and that we would, with zeal and diligence, grow and mature in our relationship because there are a lot of people around us who are false teachers, who are lost, who do not know you. They need you, Lord. And the more equipped we are, the better it's going to be when we have conversations with these folks. And so I pray that you would help us to be ever diligent in this growth process, yielding to the Spirit of God daily. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.